everybody, and welcome to the Wasatch Report. This is episode 35. I'm Suzanne Sherman, Jeff Johnson, as always, co-host, producer, and wonderful friend. Today, we're going to talk about the Constitution and other current events, primarily COVID and this election debacle. We did a show on this a couple weeks uh, ago, I should beg your pardon, and I wrote a blog about it with Jeff called Electile Dysfunction. So our question that we've been discussing now on Facebook with our guests that's joining us today, and I'll bring them on momentarily, is, is the Constitution the solution to what's ailing our nation, pardon my French, or is it in fact the cause of what's going on. Mark Kresslins is a rodeo, radio, rodeo, radio personality. <laughs> Not your first is he, <laughs> When did you become a rodeo clown? All right, come on. This is serious. We're going through his credentials. He is a radio personality, author, former senior legislative assistant from Washington, oh, D.C., author of the book, Hashtag Exit a peaceful resolution for America's irreconcilable differences and why Christians must lead the way. Before I bring him on, facebook.com forward slash Suzanne Sherman's The Wasatch Report radio show, Politiprep Podcasts, The Red Hot Chili Prepper, C-H-I-L-L-Y, if you're interested in learning about our preparedness advice. And if you can't listen to us live on Facebook, Anchor FM has us on at least six or seven platforms by now. You can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. I want to thank those that do. Also, for the other donations that we've had come in lately, SuzanneCSherman.com is my website. From there, you can find our most recent blogs as well as published articles. Recently, I wrote a blog in the 10th Amendment Center, picked it up uh, about the uh, the current situation. Um, anyway, so we're going to talk about that too. That was after Thanksgiving. That was with regards to the religious res uh, restrictions and Governor Cuomo and how the Supreme Court fixed all that, which was a, a boom, I guess, to the First Amendment rights, but a another nail in the coffin of federalism. That being said, Mark, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me back on. It's always a joy to be with my two close friends, uh, Suzanne and Jeff. So uh, I'm honored to be here as usual and look forward to a lively conversation. Mark, let's talk about the holy parchment here. <laughs> One of the things yeah. I was asking you on your on your book now, you say why Christians must lead the way. And I want to make sure that people understand when we talk about Christian values and and you know, some of these things, we talk about abortion frequently. I have said also, it, it, you don't have to be a person of faith to believe this. If your faith is even uh, agnostic or atheist, you can still, on a basis of human decency, find the practice of murdering the unborn repugnant. We're not going to get into that today, but, uh, you know, this isn't just something, this isn't a show just for Christians, but right. your perspective as a pastor, I asked you why Christians must lead the way. Um, is there any blame that you care to assign to Christians for where we are in this right now? Oh yeah. A great deal actually lies at our, at our feet. And, and this is really kind of the genesis of the book. You know, Jesus has some very specific commands he gives to us. He has some very specific instructions he gives to his followers. One of them is a very famous one. We've all heard it. And it's, it goes, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, we tend to 
chop that word in half, peacemaker, and we think, okay, well, blessed is kind of those people who want peace or feel peaceful or seek peace, things like that. But Jesus adds the word makers after it. So blessed are the peacemakers, those who make peace, who are seeking to do something other uh, than violence, but actually deciding to follow him and be peacemakers. And so here we are in a in a system of government where the entire system is predicated on violence towards one another. Now, the violence can be extreme insofar as it's physical, but it can also be kind of innocuous in that it's voting. And so we have a system of government where my vote can actually cause violence to you. Now, what do I mean by violence? Well, my vote has authorized government to take your money. And it doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat or Libertarian. It doesn't matter. The minute you endorse the idea of government, you are endorsing the government using force against somebody. Now, we're seeing maximum levels of force right now being delivered. Maximum. I mean, more than any of us have seen it, the threat of force is right at their doorsteps. And in the midst of that, Christians are called to be peacemakers. Now, what can that look like? Well, I'm not a peacemaker if I want to force my values via government on California. Now, I'm not a peacemaker. I'm using government violence to force California liberals to do something they don't want to do. Now, I am not allowed to do that. Now, if I see a Californian or an Oklahoman murdering somebody, I'm going to engage that. And I'm going to send a few rounds downrange on that to stop that murder. The same thing as if I see a rape, I'm going to do the same thing. If I see theft, I'm going to intervene in that thing. Those are kind of the big three that we all know are wrong. But homosexual marriage, do I have a right to use government to force Californians to not be involved? I may abhor it. I may be able to argue biblically that that's not God's plan. I may be able to do all that. It's an entirely different topic, though, when I decide to go vote for government agents to go force Californians to not participate in homosexual marriage. This is the inconsistency in the Christian mind when we lop government into it. We start thinking, and then when you get the David Barton narrative of Christian America and, you know, uh, God created the Constitution. And before you know it, Christians begin to get a sense of entitlement that I'm, I'm a Christian. Therefore, I should be in charge of government because I know what's right. I know what God's will is for everything. No, you don't. What an arrogant idea Christians have developed when it comes to government. And it comes through guys like David Barton and Christian you know, nationalists and others that are out there, Franklin Graham, all these guys who are just agitating for Christians to use force against other people to compel them to what? Christian behavior? When does the law uh, compel people to become Christians? I mean, this is utter lunacy that I, I, it took me, sadly, a long time to come to conclusion. But the last decade and a half, I've been on this bandwagon for a while. Christians are directly are uh, responsible for a great deal of what's going on in, in, uh, with regards to the tension in our country right now. My gosh, we've created the Constitution as if it's the 67th book of the Bible. We act like it's 
divinely inspired that the apostles Washington, Madison, and and uh, and uh, uh, Hamilton uh, wrote the uh, the sixty seventh book of the Bible. The founding apostles, violate. right? These were, the founding, these were the founding apostles? Yeah, the founding <laughs> apostles. My gosh, the nonsense we believe, and we have to emphasize the word believe because it's not actually in the historic record. So you can't find anything in the historic record where the uh, framers of the Constitution sat around Independence Hall and said, uh, who's got a Bible so we can figure out how to design a government and let's go to Isaiah 33, 22 and do it. There's nothing in the historic record. Our, our mutual friend, Kevin Goodsman, I asked him one day, can you tell me that letter where Madison referred to turning to Isaiah 33, 22 to figure out the three branches of government? And Kevin just looked, what are you talking about? There's nothing in the record where Madison turned to the pages of scripture to figure out how to design the three branches of government. And dummy me, it was right in Federalist 47 where they got the idea from Montesquieu. And Madison writes it. He said, we got the idea of separation of powers from Montesquieu. Christians, we don't think well. We we listen to nice sounding stories. I see my friend Julia is on and she will tell you that she loves the nice sounding stories about the development of the Constitution and, and its allegiance to it. And then we create kind of a golden calf with it. And suddenly, you know, it's you're almost sinning to think about speaking against the Constitution when that thing is full of errors. I mean, beyond what you could imagine. And, and we're going to get to those airs momentarily. First, we're going to take a break for our friends from Anchor, and then we will revisit right where we left off. We'll be right back. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Wasatch Report. Joining Jeff Johnson and myself today is Mark Kresslins, and we are talking about whether or not the Constitution is the cause of the issues that we are having today, or whether we can count on that for solutions to get ourselves out of this mess. Uh, right now, the way we're leaning is uh, no. <laughs> no <laughs> solution. And just just kind of catching up really quickly, uh, just so you know, folks, where we are now, the Holy Trinity is not the legislative, executive, and the judicial branch. Don't go there. Mark, you mentioned the Judeo-Christian nation. We hear this all the time. America was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. Therefore, we were hearing when candidate Obama came along, we cannot have a Muslim in the office. We are a Judeo-Christian. The Muslims are taking over. My gosh, the Constitution itself said that uh, statements, loyalty, oaths of faith were not required, yet all of a sudden Christians are demanding it. Yeah, yeah, no, this is a disturbing trend that I've seen in my community. I'm a born-again evangelical Christian, former pastor, and it's a disturbing trend that I see that we believe a narrative, and that's really all it comes down to. We believe a story about the founding of the country. You know, it's funny how Christians emphasize the Mayflower Compact, Plymouth Landing, they emphasize that, failing to recognize that um, about 12 years earlier, the Jamestown settlement was arrived before the pilgrims did. And there were even settlements prior to that. But it doesn't fit the narrative of America being a Christian country and God supernaturally giving us, you know, America. 
Jamestown, the Jamestown settlement doesn't fit that narrative because they're not there writing the Mayflower Compact. They didn't leave England for the same reasons the Pilgrims did. They left England for economic reasons. And my gosh, there's this, this whole world across the ocean and, you know, life will be better over there. Let's go give it a whirl and see if we, we can we can make it over there. Well, and speaking, instead, speaking of those pilgrims, by the way, what did Clyde Wilson say about Plymouth Rock? Right there lies the start of the Yankee problem. <laughs> if you wanted to say something, you had a quick question, then we'll go back to Mark. Oh, I just have that question I had given him before the show, so he wouldn't be surprised by it. Uh, you know, but you're talking about Christians. It, do it doesn't necessarily have to be Christians. We have a whole host of people today that have gone to public school and been indoctrinated with the Constitution is the law of the land, and it's the answer to all our problems. All we have to do is vote harder, and all these pl uh, platitudes that we've been hearing all of our lives. So we had a discussion today on one of the threads, and I wanted to ask you to expound on your thoughts on why Article 1, Section 8 offers no solutions to the problem of government today, because that's what everyone out there is saying. Well, we just need to get back to Article 1, Section 8. I mean, and it's it's everyone. It's there's a ton of ton of people that are saying that. Yeah, this has been one of the things that you know has kind of evolved in my own thinking on this, especially having been someone that worked on Capitol Hill for two GOP conservative members of Congress. I was fully in the belly of the beast and entrenched in what people think is a constitutional government. Well, let me just be clear on one point right out of the gate. Not once in my time on Capitol Hill did anybody in my office and certainly no other office either, did they whip out their pocket constitutions when you're either voting or supporting or sponsoring excuse me, some piece of legislation. Not one time did we ever pull out the Constitution and say, do we have any authority to do this? It's just not how it, it's not how it works up there. And unfortunately, you know, during the campaign season, people will make you think that they're Jeff Thomas Jefferson. But uh, let me assure you, there ain't no constitutionalism going on in Capitol Hill ever. Uh, at least my time there, I never, I never once took out my Constitution when I was advising my member of Congress how to vote or whether we should sponsor legislation and ask, do we have any authority to do this? This doesn't matter. It does. The Constitution doesn't matter up there at all. So I just want to preface my my coming comments with that, that the illusion of the Constitution literally is just that. It is an illusion. It's not true. It's not functional in any way that you think it is. So, but even if it were, there are some major flaws with Article 1, Section 8. The first one is the most important one, though. And, and it's an interesting little problem that came out of the Philadelphia Convention. It never got solved, and it still isn't solved today. How to interpret the doggone thing. So they never codified in it. Okay, so many of you may not know this, but in most pieces of legislation that goes through, not all, but most pieces of legislation that go through the House or the Senate, they have a definitions page associated with it. And certainly by the time it gets codified into law, there's a definitions page because they got to give definitions to the words within the statute so that courts could, in theory, interpret it properly. Well, these supposed bro most brilliant men on the planet meeting in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787 craft this document and then leave no guide on how to interpret it. So right out of the gate, you see debates emerging within the um, ratifying conventions that there's clearly different views of this constitution. It shows up immediately, 
right in Philadelphia, right in uh, Pennsylvania, the first state to ratify. They're arguing over the specific tenets of of the Constitution that they're being asked to ratify, or in other words, approve, so that it becomes the governing document. And there's all kinds of shenanigans going on, but that's kind of a thread through most of the ratification conventions. There's debates. These are not unanimous. Well, in some cases they were, but in most thoughtful conventions, these are arguments over what does it mean and how is it going to affect us today? And what do you think the Federalist Papers are? They're an attempt to say, well, this is, we didn't tell you what it meant in law, but we're going to give you our opinion of what, what it means when we were writing it. Well, that doesn't mean anything. The, the Federalist Papers are not determinative or dispositive when it comes to the Constitution. They're just things we point back to and said, well, we think this is what Madison said or John Jay or Hamilton. Well, they went and violated it immediately. So the first problem with understanding the Constitution is the fact that we don't have a codified set of rules to interpret it. Now, when you don't have that, what does become the determiner of what it means? Political power does. And so throughout the last 240 some odd years or however long it's been since we've had that thing, um, 242 years, I guess, we have had essentially three schools of thought on interpreting the Constitution. There's originalism, there's textualism, and then pragmatism or living constitutionalism, however you want it. And, 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 and so the fight every two and four years is supposedly about which interpretation is going to be applied to the Constitution. Because if you apply originalism, you're going to get one set of interpretations of the Constitution. If you apply textualism, you're going to get another set. If you apply the living Constitution or pragmatism, you're going to get yet another. And what determines which interpretive model is used? Political power. And that's the unwritten rule of the Constitution. It's not, there is no static, codified, interpretive uh, requirement contained within those seven articles. So there is no Article 1, Section 8, Clause you know, 18 that says, and thou shall use originalism to interpret the contents of the Constitution. It's not there. So you end up with the court taking power, you end up with the legislature taking power, you end up with the executive, and there's just this constant constant flow of power-seeking sociopaths. And then you get the bureaucracy taking power, yeah, the unelected exactly. officials. Exactly. So anyway, it's interesting that you said that there's uh, that they put in there, there's no nothing there about which clause they're using to do legislation. Andrew uh, Avery, our friend, uh, had a post about that, and he said that, and I guess there was a, uh, they did pass legislation to, force them to include what they were using in the constitution as their basis for making a, a constitutional uh, act. But it, what they generally do is just put uh, article one, section eight, and they don't even ever mention a clause that's involved in it. It, no. it just, they just, just say, Oh, what's well, in there somewhere. And we just do it because it's in there somewhere, maybe, and maybe not, but it doesn't really matter in the end. Let me address something real quick. Brian is we got we're in a discussion with Brian on your page there, um, Jeff, and and raises the point. He actually raises the exact point, but he uses a term. And Brian, this is not picking on you, so please don't take it that way. Um, he uses the term implied, you know, and and so the minute you word add, add you're forced 
to say it's implied, well, okay, what if the other side says it's implied not that way? So now who, who is the arbiter that says this is, this is the law, this is how you do it? And of course, in our system of government, there is no arbiter. The arbiter is whoever has political power. And we've seen this literally from the very first moment the first Senate is organized. Take your clock all the way back to April of 1789, and they're forming the first Senate. And um, there's only, remember, there's only uh, uh, um, states represented by, there's only 12 states represented in the first Congress because Rhode Island's not there. In fact, there's only, uh, North Carolina's not there either. So they're forming the first Senate. They haven't ratified it yet, North Carolina and, and, and Rhode Island. They'll ratify it a couple of years later. Um, but so only uh, 11 states have formed this new Senate. And now imagine, it's sometimes how we have to just let our minds wander a little bit. The first um, uh, 20 senators meet somewhere and they have in a pub and they start to figure out who's who and who's the Federalist, who's the Anti-Federalist, who's for the you know, the Constitution, who's not. And then they split off into little subgroups. They go have dinner and they start talking about, the Federalists start talking about, well, we want to expand federal control over a lot. So they create the Judiciary Act of 1789. And Section 25 of that Judiciary Act destroys states. <laughs> yes, exactly. Now, this is literally eight months after it's ratified. They're already do you, do you expanding. Think, do you think the states, if they had had the Judiciary Act on the table, that they would have ever ratified the Constitution? No, no, no. They would no, no chance they would have. And so they right out of the gate, they, they, they learned this lesson we're talking about. Political power controls interpretation. And they start interpreting. We're the Senate and we got a lot of it. <laughs> we got a lot of political power right now. And we're going to start rolling the states. And then it's just. One after another after another, they're constantly expanding power, i.e. the Whiskey Rebellion. Where in Article 2 does President Washington have any authority whatsoever to call up 13,000 troops and march them into the uh, western Pennsylvania? You can't find it because it's not there. But he had political power. He's President Washington. Well, you know, this is, this is interesting because we mentioned uh, Kevin Goodsman earlier and you know, I disagree with a lot of his policy opinions, but I will say hands down, I don't think factually, historically, there is a living, breathing person who knows more about the nitty gritty down and dirty parts of the Constitution, the debates, ratification, you name it, that's the guy. And I asked him, what are your thoughts on what George Washington did with the Whiskey Rebellion, because essentially he was listening to Alexander Hamilton, who put away his Secretary of Treasury hat and then decided to put on his uh, Secretary of Defense party hat and go to go to town, literally. And he said, well, Alexander Hamilton was a general and generals are problem solvers. And we had a problem now of a rebellion that was going to have a an impact on the ability of this new America to get credit from overseas lenders. Mm -hmm. America had to appear to the rest of the world worthy of attaining credit yep. and debt. Folks, 
The ink wasn't dry on the holy parchment before this thing started going south. And here's the problem. I, I've been one to say, had the ability to communicate been as easy as it is now and quick, instantaneously, something happens, somebody tweets, and it's out mm -hmm. there for the world to see. I am of the opinion that the states would have said, back up the truck way longer before they did, which was pretty soon, by the way. Um, we had northern states, for instance, talking about seceding yeah. from the Union over, over the uh, Louisiana Purchase and for other reasons as well. It wasn't just a southern thing to, you know, to, to keep our slaves. That wasn't it at all. But again, that's something else that has been destroyed by the nationalization of the education system. Here's how I also think they got in, speaking of Article 1, Section 8. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8, and this is why, I, I, for the life of me, I don't know why the states ever agreed to this one, but we never really talk about this one. To promote the progress of science and useful arts, art, really? Useful mm -hmm. arts? By securing for limited time to authors and inventors the exclusive right to sell their respective writings and discoveries. Now, if 13 sovereign and independent states were coming together for essentially two purposes, to set up a free trade zone and for the common defense from foreign or the, the Indian uh, insurrections, why would they agree to have arts promoted and science promoted by a central government. This makes no sense to me. Why did they allow that? Well, this is, these are the hundreds, I'm, I'm bringing up Article 1, Section 8, because there's, there's all kinds of these holes there, right, that, that if we really had stopped and thought them through. But let's be honest, they created a government, well, they didn't actually create it in all of the summer of 1787. There were a lot of conversations from the Annapolis Convention that went on. So by the time they arrived there, they've kind of got a construct in their mind of what they're trying to do. And, and, and let me be honest and, and Suzanne and uh, Jeff, I think you probably agree with this. I want to be always fair to history and recognize that there were some problems back then. There clearly was. We owed a lot of people a lot of money. We yeah. certainly were indebted to the French. <laughs> so because we ain't winning without without them. So there's all these other extraneous issues that are intense within this um, fledgling. I mean, you really have to understand this is a fledgling government um, coming out of the the war for independence. And so I want to be careful to not say that I, I, to impugn all their motives in their mind, they believe they needed a, a more powerful central government, even when they're going to Philadelphia, supposedly to strengthen uh, the Articles of Confederation. The word strengthen can't be dismissed here. They are trying to make the Articles of Confederation, the first uh, constitution stronger because there's something broken that they all sense we got to tighten up somehow. Now they came out with a constitution, of course, uh, and it got you know violated in the spirit, anyways. But they also sometimes had reasons to do that. They they they, they at least in their mind uh, allowed themselves latitude with the constitution because of credit issues and being able to borrow money and and be. Don't forget, you still have the Brits to the north, the French to the west, and the Spaniards to. You got threats all over the place. You you don't even know. You don't know in 1790, um, 1788, 1789, whether you're going to survive. You don't really know for certain that we can muster the defense against the French if they decide to 
roll across the, you know, into North Carolina. We don't know if we can defend it, really. So I, I always want to be careful. I like hyperbole and I use it a lot. And I like to amp up my detest of the devotion to that holy parchment, as you call it, Julia, uh, Julia uh, Suzanne. I, I, and I do that all the time because I'm trying to crack people's minds because they've been trained to be devoted, almost an emotional attachment to it. And and some, I have found, at least in my experience, the only way to break that emotional attachment is hyperbole. It's just bash that thing, hit it, hit it hard. And, and so I want to hit it hard real quick with something that people overlook in the Constitution. And in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17 or 18, depending on how you want to read it, but it doesn't really much matter. Let me scroll down here to it. Uh, Mark, while you're looking for that, we're going to take a quick break for okay. our musical sponsors, Roxanne. We'll be right back. Music for this program has been brought to you by Roxanne, courtesy of Rat Pack Records. Radio Silence is the album and is available on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, RatPackRecordsAmerica.com, and RoxanneBand.com. All right, where we left off, Mark was right in the middle of a thought. We're going to do some hard-hitting against Maholy Parchment. Fire away, Mark. Yeah, so Clause 18 of Article 1, Section 8, it says this, to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for the carrying into execution the foregoing power. Conservatives, yes, yes, that's it right there. Trouble is, there's a comma, and then it goes on to read, and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. Now, Boom. What did they mean by department? Because so often conservatives will say, well, the EPA isn't even constitutional or, you know, the DHS or whatever agency you don't like. It's not even constitutional. Well, now, wait, I'm going to connect this to a passage, a section over in Article 2. Now, catch this. Over in Article 2, Section 2. Now, I'm always looking for the smoking gun of how this whole thing went off. And I found it in these two, these two sections. He says this. This is the executive. He shall have power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties provided two thirds of the senators present concur. And he shall nominate and by and with the advice of the consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors and other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not here and otherwise provided for and which shall be established by law. But the Congress may, uh, by law, vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the president alone, in the courts of law, or the heads of departments. Suddenly, you see this little bridge between Article 1, Section 8, the necessary and proper clause, after the comma, which we all don't even know we know we know everything conservatives can pretty much recite the first part of article one section eight clause part eight of the 18th uh, clause but when you connect those two together suddenly there's this nebulous group of of officers and departments 
and suddenly you begin to realize, ah, they got a lot more power than we knew. And boy, they started doing it right out of the gate. And now, certainly in our generation, since the 60s and 70s, with the explosion of agencies, who's to say they're not constitutional? Well, judging by what you just said, they are. The president, they are. a department, an executive, what do you call a minister? That's and, right there. Uh, and, and now Congress just has to enact, pass a law. Hmm, education. There you go. And what's key? I mean, where where it where it where is the limitation there? There isn't one. There is the, and that's and that's it. When you when you realize there's no, they didn't codify with punishment violating an interpretation. So imagine if if originalism had been defined and then codified, followed by a penalty for violating it. Now you've locked the Constitution down. So let's say the penalty is hanging. If you if you violate the original interpretation based on these definitions of this constitution, you are going to be hung publicly and so it'll never happen again. Now, suddenly we're much more careful about how we interpret the constitution, but they didn't do that. And then because they didn't do that, the constitution is now subject to whoever has political power and what those words mean. And they've been doing it since it started. Yes. Hey, um, so we now have, because there's ambiguity in the Constitution, we have a whole bunch of officers and departments and all these other things that are going hither and yon and eating out our substance. Oh, my goodness. Where did I hear that before? <laughs> uh, he is. Oh, yeah, here it is. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. Hmm. What was that document there, uh, Mr. Kreslins? <laughs> that, of that course. Independence, our remedy for the future. And this is an important part. This is why I beat up the Constitution all the time. Because I know that there's no objective way to use it. The neo-Marxists know that too. And they've been using it since the 60s to grow an unbelievably powerful government that is literally 48 days away from unleashing hell on all of us. And they're going to do it under the Constitution. And there's not a doggone thing you're going to be able to do about it. You can run to any court you want and you may be able to find one little piddly judge somewhere who will side with you, but then get overturned on appeal. And the Supreme Court is going to get stacked and... Amy, whatever her name was, is not going to matter a bit that you all love that Amy so-and-so, whatever her name was, got on the Supreme Court. So what? When there's when there's 14 or 15 justices, what's her little vote going to matter? It's not going to matter a bit. So you need to understand this has been a, a well-thought-out and well-executed strategy for the neo-Marxist for 60 years, and they're about to put the capstone on it. And the only way to stop it now is what Jeff just quoted. And what they're they're getting away with, what they're doing because of the Constitution. I love to refer to this article. It's from Mises.org, Mises.org, and it's called Liberty Versus the Constitution, The Early mm -hmm. Struggle. And this is an excerpt uh, from Albert J. Knox, Chapter 5 book on Jefferson. The Constitution looked fairly good on paper, but it was not a popular document, <laughs> justifiably so. Uh, people were suspicious of it and suspicious of the enabling legislation that was being enacted upon it. 
it. There was some ground for this, and this is what I've said too, as as you guys have as well. The Constitution has been laid down under unacceptable auspices. The history has been that of a coup d'etat. He also talks about the people that were really the the foremost supporters of this document, men representing special economic interests, sound familiar, four-fifths of them were public creditors, one-third land speculators, one-fifth one fifth represented interest in shipping, manufacturing, manufacturing, I beg your pardon, and merchandising. Here's the worst part. Most of them were lawyers. <laughs> Not one of them represented the interest of production. And that's what we have today, a government of parasites, not producers. What does Washington ever produce? What does government ever produce? Not a damn thing. It sucks the lifeblood out of everybody who's producing. Not only that, now they're shutting that down as well under this COVID scamdemic. Yes, I'll tell you, and, and Julia is exactly right. I, my uh, my grandson is here with us today, as you did, if you heard him in the background. So, uh, my uh, daughter, her husband deployed. Oh, good. Her daughter's my, her husband's deployed overseas, and so my daughter and her grand her daughter, her son is staying with us. But no, you have exactly. This is the anger we need to feel. Right? We have been totally railroaded by this thing, and and this is where. My accusation goes to the conservative slash Christian generals who have misled people to believe there's a solution in the Constitution. And they're doing it again right now. In, oh, well, we're going to sue them in court. Oh, well, in 2024, we'll get it back. There will not be a 2024 normal election ever again. If you can't see that, then you will never be part of the solution going forward. There came a point. And Jeff, you allude to this. Even if you look at the Second Continental Congress and the debates that are going on there prior to the issuance of the uh, uh, declaration in 1776, they're still trying to work with the king. They're trying to figure out, is there a way we can avoid this conflict? And you probably are all familiar with the Olive Branch petition. They're trying to say at this last minute, even this, now remember, this is 1775. Lexington and Concord have already happened. The British are making their move to try to squash everybody. And they're still trying to figure out, can we get out of this somehow? And that's when you get these famous speeches by uh, Sam Adams. You get these famous speeches by um, uh, Patrick Henry, who are trying to steal the people's resolve. Now, they're using inflammatory language. I mean, when you read uh, uh, Henry's St. John's speech, or Patrick or Samuel Adams' speech before the Pennsylvania legislature, well, the pseudo legislature, um, they're using inflammatory, like, be men. Don't be a weenie now. Now is not the time to go weak in the knees and lay on your back. Now is the time we steal ourselves for, for a war. Uh, and because this is all necessary to, to amp up the energy for the opposition to the king at that point. Well, we're at that exact same point right now. We have got to get angry and we have every reason to be angry. You are not in sin being angry at evil and evil is Washington, D.C. It is evil. My gosh, it has authorized the slaughter of 63 million babies. 
It has stolen trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. It has scared the crap out of all of us with this stupid COVID-19. It does evil every minute it's open. And having worked there as a senior legislative assistant, I saw it firsthand. I participated in it. I did. Me. So I know of what I'm talking about. There is not one redeeming quality to Washington, D.C. None. And until conservatives and Christians can let go of their addiction to that Constitution and this narrative about Washington, D.C. and the founders and all this, or framers and all this nonsense, and get on board with the founders in the document Jeff talked about, we have zero chance of winning, and you're going to be under neo-Marxist control. Don't think you can fight this. when they, if, they, if they get Georgia, don't think you can fight this. You are going to shut your mouth, and you're going to comply. Look at China. Now, you're going to say, oh, I'm going to be all blustery and I'm going to sue them. Ha. Yeah, They laugh at you. They I, I laugh get, at you. I get messages all the time. Hey, what do you think about so-and-so wanting to sue because their business huh. shut down? For, I said, good luck. Good luck getting government to investigate itself and find <laughs> it's been guilty of wrongdoing. We're going to take our final break for Anchor. And then I'm going to share a passage from a historian who is profound profoundly unpopular with conservatives, but I had an open mind and I'm reading his book and I've taken some excerpts out from what he has to say. We'll be right back. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Wasatch Report. Jeff Johnson, Mark Cresslins, and uh, me, Suzanne Sherman. We're talking about the Constitution and uh, saying that perhaps it is not all. Uh, all that glitters might not be gold. And uh, I I was very curious. I, I'd heard from conservatives just, and I, I think his politics are horrible when it comes to domestic politics, the proper role of government. But the infamous Howard Zinn, I'm actually reading his book, on a people's history of the United States because I was interested. Most of the history I read is about the founders, is about the framers, about the military. Uh, and this gives a different, a different background of it. Yes, he has a slant, but he has some also very good points. I listen to a lot of speeches. I listen to a lot of presentations, including, you know, from you know, Thomas Sowell and uh, a lot of these, uh, Tom Woods and a lot of these other historians. Uh, and some of these go way back 10 years. I've even listened to Noam Chomsky. Oh my God, another commie. Yeah, but you know what? Some of his foreign policy stuff makes a lot of sense. And that's how that ties into the libertarianism. But let me share with you, I'm going to just share one of these that I've taken out. Um, and this is, this is again, Howard Zinn about the constitution. What was not made clear it was a time when the language of freedom was new and its reality untested was the shakiness of anyone's liberty when entrusted to a government of the rich and powerful. Remember now the, the context I, I shared with you from Knox's book and uh, Knox's book on, on Jefferson. Indeed, the same problem existed for the other provisions of the Constitution, like the clause forbidding states to impair the obligation of contract or giving Congress the power to tax the people and appropriate, appropriate money. They all sound benign and neutral until one asks, tax who? For what? Appropriate what? 
for whom to protect everyone's contract seems like an act of an act of fairness of equal treatment until one considers the contracts made between rich and poor between employer employer and employee landlord and tenant credit now if we go back now and think about one of the earliest cases the yazoo land grants remember in georgia Marshall, I believe, was uh, tangentially involved in this. We talked about the land speculators with the Constitution. And we had fraudulent land sales. An elect, uh, the, the people of Georgia elected a legislative body to rectify and remedy these fraudulent land sales. And the Supreme Court struck that down. Well, you know, this can just be added to the list of many other injustices that occurred under the guise of the constitution and fraudulent activities. And, you know, what we're, what we're experiencing relatively may be more challenging than any other generation right now, but every generation tends to face these realities um, that we're facing uh, when you have government involved, whether it becomes, whether it's Martin Luther King's and the civil rights act, um, you know, whether it's the Nullification Act of 1832, whether it's the very Second Continental Congress where they decide to break away from their existing structure that was, in their mind, tyrannizing them. We all arrive at this point where the existing structure isn't sufficient actually to meet the needs of the people. And we are there. That is exactly where we are right now. Now, unfortunately, because we have a love affair, an emotional connection to a document to a story, we are very paralyzed right now. We don't know what to think and we don't know what to do. And so we're very vulnerable right now to being taken advantage of. And honestly, at the conservative Christian general uh, platform, we're being taken advantage of by them, They're telling us to wait to 2024. You know, there's all this stuff in the, you know, out there on the internet about Trump and voter fraud and all this stuff as if Trump's going to save the day. He's not. At best, We've talked about this many times, Suzanne and Jeff. At best, he was a stopgap. That was it. That was the best he could do is buy time. Now, unfortunately, we didn't use the time very well. And right. here we are now on the verge of 48 days away from a total neo-Marxist control of government. And then it's over for us. Um, you're going to shut up. This, this, this radio program would be dangerous to be on after January 21st. It would be dangerous because now you're looking at our, uh, U.S. Code, uh, uh, 18 U.S. Code 2354 and 55, which can get you guys in a lot of trouble um, if they interpret it, if, if they interpret it the if way they, they want it. it that way. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, 182385, which is uh, makes unlawful the advocacy or even teaching of the necessity of the violent overthrow of the United States government. Never mind how many times it's done that to other governments. Yeah, Never right. mind how many times they've spied on everyone else. And us, we have the Espionage Act, Alien and Sedition Act came before the ink was dry on the holy parchment. But yeah, this is what's really <laughs> scary because under a strict interpretation of that status of that uh, statute as written, could make teaching of the Declaration of Independence yeah. unlawful. Granted, when the United States left, or when, when I'm sorry, the, the colonies declared their independence, they weren't trying to overthrow the British government. But don't you think for a nanosecond that they would have a hard time, you know, uh, trying to interpret what we're saying, uh, 
casting out the light upon the illegitimacy of this government, which also brings to the point, the forefront, why is anybody surprised that we are having fraudulent and illegitimate elections? I know. Fraudulent and oh. illegitimate but, government. Why? But hold on. But hold on. <laughs> you, you got a conservative general, the attorney general saying, oh, there's no, there's no fraud here to say, step away. Nothing to see here. So, you know, we got we got the swamp trying to protect the swamp. I think sure. it's not going to change. Donald Trump, if he was sincere in what his campaign promises were, squandered a tremendous opportunity once he got control of all the little toys and all the little power. I think he enjoyed that. He brought a lot of swamp creatures in. Mitch McConnell was a never Trumper. What does he do? Appoint Mitch's wife? As a position, I forgot what it was. Nikki Haley, John Bolton, Pompeo, Jeff Sessions. I mean, it is a, a, a hit parade of swamp rat, deep state scoundrels. He squandered this opportunity. Where, what, any, any discussion of Dr. Ron Paul? Hey, how about putting him in, bar, in, in charge of the Department of the Treasury? Yeah, you know, Fed, Federal Reserve. Put him in charge of the Federal Reserve. And you think he'd audit it? I yeah, bet exactly. you he would. He could have done a lot. What did he say towards the end, towards the elections? I'm going to bring the troops home from Afghanistan, my next administration. What are you trying to get the anti-war contingency of your existing supporters to say, all right, I'll give you one more chance. You know what? For that to have had any credibility, he needed to start doing it sooner. I will say this. We know that he had some resistance from the generals and commanders over in Afghanistan who were refusing to, to obey the orders. Well, there's, there's a remedy for refusing to obey orders. There really is. So I think he should have been very, very focused on that. The other thing is to his law and order stance, uh, death penalty for drug dealers, death penalty for cop killers. No, I'm not advocating that it's okay to kill police officers, but if you look at what happened in Breonna Taylor's case, when Kenneth Walker shot in self-defense, whoever this was kicking down their door, had that officer died and this law been passed, he could have gotten the death penalty for shooting who he legitimately thought was a home intruder. Yeah, you know, I, I think that all this just kind of collapses into a into an essential concept that we're all wrestling with right now. And it really... I think can be summed up into an issue of integrity for us, not, not for our leaders, for us. We, when we buy into the political construct that we were all raised with, and then we emotionally attach ourselves to it, what we tend to do is put blinders on and we don't see truth. We stop, we seeing, we, we begin to see what we perceive to be truth or want to be true. Jesus makes this profound claim. He says, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. Now, obviously, in the context of Jesus saying this, he is speaking about eternal truths. Often the things Jesus said, the principle holds true as well. Truth is always good. In, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 10, it says, he who walks in integrity walks securely. So when Christians and conservatives or immoral people get on a political playing field, the first thing they sacrifice is honesty. So they stop being honest about the facts we presented here today about the Constitution. And they dismiss 
the things they don't like and embrace the things they do like, because really what they've become are relativists. And in pol politics is traded in relativism. That's all it is. It's never honest. Politics is not designed to be honest. It's about power. It's about control. And that's one of the reasons I love so much the prose that comes out of the Declaration of Independence. Let me just read a couple of sections real quick, because this is our remedy, actually. Yeah, for the we've future. got about two minutes, Mark, and we're going to have to wrap up the show, but go ahead. Okay, good. It says, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle us in decent respect to our opinions of mankind requires that we should declare the causes that impel us to this separation. And he goes on to say, Jefferson writes that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, i.e. natural rights, whenever any government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such a form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. And he closes with this. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing, pursuing invariably the object evinces a design to reduce them to absolute despotism, which is where we are right now, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future and security. That is integrity. That's integrity. We are facing evil. And you will never out evil evil by playing within its construct. You have to create a new playing field that get on that with rules that are filled with integrity. Get off the lying constitutional playing field. You cannot win there ever. You are going to be under neo-Marxist control if you stay on that field. I 100% guarantee it. Not 99. I 100% guarantee it. But but Mark, Mark, we just need to vote harder. Exactly. We got to do it, the lesser of two evils, Mark. We just need the lesser of two evils. Oh well, enough of that oh, crap. I know. I think this uh, what's going on with the election right now is a natural uh, and an unavoidable outcome, as as you said, Mark. A long train of of abuses. It's the longest train in the world. <laughs> uh, and this election, I, I think, also is a result of Donald Trump being really um, a populist repudiation of the Republican Party. The Republican Party had decided they would have none of it. They have turned their back on him. Oh, yeah. And it is, it's really going to be, I, I don't know what our next step is at this point, other than to just keep slamming away at the at other, at other options, such as secession, nullification, yeah civil disobedience on a personal level. Go ahead, Jeff. We only, it, I, I, I don't put any faith and hope in, in, in elections, but there is one more election coming and it's in Georgia. It's for the Senate. If the Republican wins there, we may have a little wall against the tyranny. You know how, you know, Mark, how I feel about that. But, I mean, but if the Democrat wins, it's all bets off. They have all three houses. They have both houses in the and the White House. It's game over. 
at that point. It is absolutely over. There's no hope, and we better just buckle it up because it's not going to get any better. That's why I talk about preparedness all the time. You know, if if a uh, if the Republican can hold the Senate, if they can hold the Senate from the state of Georgia, at the most that's going to do is throw a few grains of sand in the gears of this freight train of tyranny that we're seeing right now. No more, no less. There's no taking America back. But you can rethink <laughs> the... American Union in the 21st Century, fantastic book put together by a good friend, Don Livingston. It's on my uh, website, SuzanneCSherman.com. Mark, before we go, how can people get your book, which is outstanding, by the way? You can go to my website, uh, LoveGodWithYourMind.com, LoveGodWithYourMind.com, and you can order it there. And uh, connect with me over on Facebook as well. Uh, I've got a few friend slots available left, and I'm just about at their 5,000 limit. I'm also over on uh, float.app, F-L-O-T-E dot A-P-P. Uh, it's probably where I'm going to end up because Facebook is a nightmare. I'm here. All right. Well, thank you. And uh, we might have another really cool announcement next week. And if that <laughs> comes to fruition, I'm probably going to be moving. All right. Mark Kresslin, Jeff Johnson. I'm Suzanne Sherman. This has been the Wasatch Report. Thank you, everybody, for listening. <laughs>